Hello, a very warm welcome to all talks of the World Sepsis Congress 2021. Over the next seven weeks, we will release all sessions from the Congress here weekly on Tuesdays. Today, we are getting started with Session 1, the opening session. The full release schedule is available on the Congress website. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the presentations of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for World Sepsis Congress there. Now, let me hand it over to Tex Kassoon, President of the Global Sepsis Alliance and one of the program chairs for World Sepsis Congress 2021 to get us started. Good morning to you and good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Um, welcome to the World Sepsis Congress 2021, the third in our series of uh, World Congresses. Uh, this has been held in a very uncertain time in um, with uh, the COVID pandemic region across the world. And um, we're grateful that you will, uh, you are attending. Um, this, uh, my name is Tex Kassoon. I'm the president of the Global Sepsis Alliance and I will be moderating this full session. The session is on the impact of policy, healthcare, uh, science and public-private partnership. It's a very uh, exciting session and encapsulates uh, many of the global uh, issues that we face today. Uh, the first uh, the sessions will have uh, talks about major threats, uh, role of policy and safety in uh, healthcare, uh, better pandemic planning for peacetime, uh, how the pandemic has helped reduce the burden of sepsis, as well as uh, the role of politics in fighting pandemics and the biggest uh, global threat that we have. Um, it is um, my pleasure to also thank the sponsors for this uh, Congress because without them, we would never have uh, been uh, able to put together such a comprehensive program with over uh, 90 speakers from over 30 countries. Um, so with this in mind, I'd like to welcome you and uh, I would like to introduce our first speaker, uh, Dr. Christopher Murray, who is... Uh, the, Professor Murray, the Institute Director for the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, and he's Professor and Chair um, of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Professor Murray's career has focused on improving health for everyone worldwide by improving health uh, evidence. He's a physician and economist, and his work has led to the development of a wide range of methods and empirical studies to strengthen health measurement analyze performance of public health and medical care systems and to assess cost-effectiveness of uh, health technologies. Uh, before founding the IHME, uh, Professor Murray uh, served as the Executive Director of the Evidence and Information for Policy Cluster uh, at the World Health Organization and as Director of the Harvard Initiative for Global Health and the Harvard Center for Population Development and Studies. He is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine in 2018, the co-recipient of the John Goods Canada Gardener Global Health Award. So I'll turn it off to Professor Murray. Uh, Chris will be, uh, not be live with us because of other commitments, but he has a kindly supply of video, which we'll play now. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be able to speak to the World Congress on Sepsis uh, today. 
And what I would like to do is make a few remarks uh, about what's coming or might be coming in the 21st century. What are the big threats ahead? And the perspective I want to bring to this is from the Global Burden of Disease Collaboration, which is a collaboration of more than 5,000 investigators in 150 countries that has been working together to produce annual assessments of the trends for every major condition and risk factor uh, for many years now running. And the GBD has many ways of looking at the past, and now we've added in recent years forecasts out to 2050 and actually for some outcomes out to the end of the century. And that uh, rules-based evidence synthesis approach to looking at the past and then carrying those trends into the future give us some insights into what may be the, the big threats that are coming. One important aspect of understanding what the Global Burden of Disease uh, study brings to the table is the different ways that we look at health problems in the GBD. We look at uh, diseases as, as enshrined in the international classification of uh, diseases and injuries, the ICD framework of underlying cause. We also look at a wide range of environmental, social, behavioral risk factors and look at the burden of disease that's attributable to past exposure of those risks. And then we use that information to make forecasts into the future. Now, more recently, we've tried to add a third dimension above and beyond uh, diseases as defined in the ICD and risk factors. And those are clinical syndromes. For example, sepsis, which is one of the most important. And the distinction there is that in the rules of the ICD, we think of what's the underlying driver. So if you have diabetes, uh, that may be the underlying disease. And if you develop a gram-negative sepsis in the ICU and die, you will still show up in the GBD normally in, in diabetes. But because there's so much interest in the clinical syndromes themselves, we have now for a number of years been starting to model sepsis as a broad syndrome. Uh, and then within sepsis, we've been looking at meningitis, lower, lower respiratory infections, abdominal and peritoneal infections, skin infections, bloodstream infections, and others uh, as part of our effort to quantify not only sepsis, but also uh, what is the role of antimicrobial resistance in, in the deaths and the patterns that we see. And that's, that's work that's really uh, sort of at the cutting edge of where the GBD is going right now. So with that perspective, let me talk about a handful of the big risks that we see in the data that are coming. So first is, of course, in the era of COVID, uh, we now recognize uh, more than we ever did the risks of major pandemics as part of what drives health. And I think uh, we know about the reported numbers of deaths and cases from COVID. That's a substantial undercount. And we will soon be uh, releasing information where we count uh, the, the full number of COVID deaths. And it's, it's quite a bit higher than what's publicly known. But whether it's three or seven million deaths in the world from COVID already, uh, it is a major threat, 
And we certainly don't think, given what's unfolding in India and in South America right now, with uh, major epidemics driven by escape variants, COVID is not over. And we unfortunately expect that this pandemic that we're living through will be a continuing major aspect of global health for the next few years. But it also tells us that there may be future pandemics, and that's part of what we obviously collectively are going to pay more and more attention to, which is the threat of those pandemics in the future. Second big uh, concern, I think, is antimicrobial resistance. Uh, it's one of those things that hasn't been, uh, you know, there's the Lord O'Neill report that brought a lot of attention to it, but it hasn't been uh, built into the annual assessment of the global burden of disease. That's something that we've been working on for a number of years. That's coming soon. We expect to release this year the first set of results about the deaths that are directly attributable to antimicrobial resistance as well as the deaths where there is an association with or, or resistance is present, but we can't necessarily say um, that the difference between a drug resistant and a susceptible infection led to death. By any account, it's a major cause of burden and it rivals in magnitude many of the diseases that are at the top of the global health priority list, such as malaria, TB and HIV. So expect that we will be adding to that set of global uh, threats, the uh, threat of antimicrobial resistance. Third major threat that we see in this century, it's already present, but expected to get worse and, and occupy more and more of the public's attention, health system resources, and, and increase the burden of disease in most countries in the world eventually, and that is rising levels of obesity. And I think everybody's aware of the global obesity epidemic. Uh, we know that obesity has many effects, both directly on diseases, through cholesterol, through blood pressure, uh, through blood sugar, of course. And so the obesity epidemic driving up diabetes, but also driving up cardiovascular disease uh, to, uh, that's associated with it, a number of cancers, uh, is likely to continue to grow. And uh, that's built into our forecast and very clearly one of the dominant factors uh, in the coming 25 to 50 years for human health. Other, uh, the next on our list of uh, the sort of big picture for the 21st century is the various effects of climate change, which will start to manifest itself. Uh, we've included in the global burden of disease in the 2019 round and all future rounds, the burden that's attributable to high and low temperature. And we're progressively adding into our forecast of the GBD other pathways through which climate will have an impact. For example, one of the most important may be increasing rural poverty in those parts of the world that'll be most affected by rising temperature and changing uh, precipitation and that rural poverty will drive both migration out of those zones, but also worsening uh, health outcomes in those settings. And so we, ex we see the deaths directly attributable to heat rising in the, in the coming decades. Uh, and in the sort of base case of what we expect to happen uh, to uh, temperature rise, 
uh, given the past trends that we've observed, that again starts to look like a, uh, an important uh, cause of ill health in the future. Uh, two more uh, major issues that we see driving the 21st century. Uh, the first, the next one is one that may seem a little bit distant to our usual thinking about diseases and risks and clinical syndromes, and that is the enormous shift uh, in demography that is underway in the high-income world and will spread steadily to the middle and low-income world, where most of the world is moving to a state where the fertility levels are below replacement. And we will then uh, see global population peaking in the 2060s, probably, and population declining thereafter. And that may be good for the environment, uh, but it brings with it major changes in age structure, where we will get an inverted population pyramid, more people in the age group above you than below you. And as that uh, spreads through societies, that has many ramifications on fiscal space and on how um, governments will finance health insurance, social security. Uh, economists are arguing that inverted population pyramids will have ramifications for economic growth and productivity and innovation. So quite far reaching implications. And then there's the direct effects of that inverted population age structure on causes that are strongly related to age, such as Alzheimer's. Now, the last of the global threats for the 21st century uh, that are on my list today is, uh, particularly in middle-income countries, the burden related to air pollution. Uh, we see that burden is very large. It's growing in places that have yet to restrict uh, uh, PM 2.5 pollution and likely to continue to be one of the large risks that's currently increasing. So that's the perspective of some of the big threats for the 21st century. Uh, given the topic of this Congress is sepsis, clearly sepsis and antimicrobial resistance and both COVID and future pandemics are, are very central to the issues that you will be addressing in this Congress. So thank you for the opportunity to bring uh, some thoughts from the Global Burden of Disease Collaboration and the forecasting that's associated with the GBD uh, to this important uh, uh, venue today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, there will be uh, no questions for uh, uh, Dr. Murray, who uh, just so uh, provided us with a video because of the schedule. It is my pleasure now to introduce uh, Mr. Jeremy Hunt, who has been a Conservative member of Parliament for Southwest Parliament since May 2005. Um, Mr. Hunt, um, in May 2010, was appointed Secretary of State of the Commission Olympics, Media and Sport Bureau, which time he oversaw a successful Olympic and Parliament in London in the summer of 2012. Many of you have been that. From September 2012 uh, to July uh, 2018, Jeremy held a position of Secretary of State for Health. Uh, in June 2018, he became the longest serving Secretary of State for Health in British history. And in July 2018, he was appointed uh, Sec Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, a position he held until July 2019. He was elected to the chair of the House of Commons 
health and social care a select committee in January 2020. Um, uh, Jeremy Hunt will be speaking to us on the role of policy of patient safety. As you can see, he has wide experience and uh, uh, we'll, uh, uh, I guess, uh, bring a very sort of thoughtful uh, uh, discourse to this uh, policy. Jeremy? Thank you very much. And it's a great privilege to speak to um, the World Sepsis Congress. And I want to start by thanking you and everyone who campaigns on sepsis around the world, because, you know, as we've just heard from Christopher Murray, it is a massive contributor to the global burden of disease, but still one that is not as widely understood as it should be. Um, you mentioned that I was responsible for the London 2012 Olympics, and it was actually at the Paralympics uh, that I first heard the news that uh, there was going to be a cabinet reshuffle. And even before the closing ceremony, I was asked to go and meet the Prime Minister in Downing Street. And to my absolute shock, he asked me to become the Secretary of State for Health. Now, in the UK, because um, we have a taxpayer-funded system, uh, we are unusual in that the NHS is the largest healthcare organisation in the world, 1.4 million people. It's uh, the fifth largest. It's the fifth largest employer overall in the world, behind only the the Red Army in China and the American Army and McDonald's and Walmart. So the NHS is number five. And when you're asked to be responsible for such a huge, huge bureaucracy, it's pretty terrifying. And um, I wanted to make sure that I stayed closely in touch with people right at the bottom of the pyramid. So I really knew what was happening on the front line. And it was in that context that just a few months into being health secretary, um, a, a young couple who came from Devon in the southwest of England came to see me in my office. Uh, they were called Scott and Sue Morrish. Um, Scott is a photographer. Sue is a graphic designer. And their son, Sam, had died from sepsis at the age of three. And it was an absolutely heartbreaking story because uh, they called a, a helpline and the person who'd taken their call hadn't spotted that it might be sepsis. Their GP hadn't spotted that it might be sepsis. They'd gone into an A&E department uh, where Sam wasn't screened for sepsis until it was too late. And... Um, it, it was a really tragic story, but what happened after Sam died was actually even more shocking because Scott and Sue were told that this is just one of those things that sometimes happens. There's nothing that can be done about it. They grieved for six months, but they noticed some inconsistencies in the account they were given of Sam's care. And uh, when they tried to raise this with their local hospital, they described how the shutters came down. No one was prepared to meet them, to talk to them. In fact, the only person who apologised to them was their GP. Um, and they said to me, they still use that GP today. It's not easy, but they, they still do. But no one at the hospital would even meet them. And when I heard that, I, I realised that when we're going, if we're going to tackle sepsis and indeed wider patient safety issues in modern healthcare systems, 
we have to think as much about getting the culture right as about the practical measures that you need to take. And one of the problems we have in healthcare systems all over the world is that we make it very, very difficult for doctors and nurses to be open and transparent about mistakes that they may have made. They worry they could get fired by their hospital, could get struck off the medical register. It could be reputationally very damaging. The reality is that everyone is human, everyone makes mistakes, and unless you have openness and transparency, you make it very hard for people to learn from those mistakes. And and the second story I wanted to tell you was of a lady I met uh, who comes from Cornwall, uh, next door county to Devon. And she came to see me much later on during my time as health secretary. Her name is Melissa Mead. And she lost her son, William, around the time of his first birthday. Again, it was uh, from sepsis. Again, a subsequent independent investigation found there were four missed chances to, uh, that could have saved William's life. Um, and again, she was fobbed off by people saying, Melissa, dear, these things happen. And she had to fight tenaciously to get to the truth about why William died. But Melissa came to my office. She sat down in front of me and she had a a teddy bear with her, which belonged to William. She put it on the table in front of me. I subsequently found out that inside that teddy bear were William's ashes. And that, of course, is something you never, ever forget when you have an experience like that. And Melissa took that teddy bear containing William's ashes around, not just to see the health secretary, but around every TV studio to every journalist she met to raise awareness of sepsis. And I don't think there's anyone in the UK who's done more to raise awareness of sepsis. So I want to salute the brave families who have experienced sepsis and spoken out about it because they have made a choice to relive their own agonies, in this case, the death of a child, over and over again to try and stop other families having to go through the same agony. So my real message today is that, you know, the World Health Organization is very clear. Sepsis is one of the biggest uh, causes of preventable death. Um, we need to raise awareness of sepsis. And thanks to the work of Melissa Mead and uh, fantastic organizations like the UK Sepsis Trust, run by the brilliant Ron Daniels, uh, there is, in the UK anyway, much, much greater awareness of sepsis than there's ever been. We have uh, posters stuck onto the side of ambulances. Uh, the, the vast majority of hospitals now screen inpatients and people arriving in emergency departments for sepsis on arrival. Um, Christopher Murray is absolutely right. We need to address the long-term issue of antimicrobial resistance, which will become a short-term and immediate emergency very, very soon unless we act on it. But we also need to think about the culture that has meant we have taken much too long to learn about the risks of sepsis. 
uh, because we still make it much too difficult for people in modern healthcare systems to speak openly, uh, honestly about uh, why tragedies have happened. So I want to thank everyone for the role that they are playing in making this change happen and just leave you with the words of the American thinker, Melissa Mead, uh, no relation, um, the American thinker, Margaret Mead, no relation to Melissa Mead, who I was talking about earlier, but she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, everyone, for this very sort of, um, I guess, uh, sort of in, insightful way of um, looking at it from the point of view of, um, I guess, the emotional side and blending that with policy at the same time. I think we need both. And my question then uh, to you would be uh, in view of your experience in the UK system, obviously um, there are more resources there, and we live in a very spiky world when it comes to resources, communication, and uh, um, my question to you, how would you translate that to other areas in the world um, where we do not have a rundown yet? Well, it's a, it's a very important question. I think it's why the World Health Organization has an incredibly important role, and we have, um, we have in the current Director General, Dr. Tedros, a uh, formidable champion of patient safety and it was under his leadership that, that uh, the WHO decided to have an annual World Patient Safety Day which is on September the 17th every year and what the WHO can do is to spread uh, the messages on these issues amongst its members in the developing world and they have I think been a, traditionally a great champion for uh, the needs of developing countries uh, but I think um, the issues are are different because um, in in countries like the UK and Germany, it's not generally going to be from a lack of basic facilities that you get uh, some some of these tragedies happening with with sepsis. It'll be a lack of awareness, uh, a covering up that sadly sometimes happens. Um, but uh, everywhere that needs it has got the antibiotics that are needed. Um, in developing countries, it's going to be different. And I think I would just say that this really relates back to what we're all thinking about with the pandemic. We aren't going to make the world safe from pandemics until we are prepared to make sure that every country has uh, the basics that are necessary in any healthcare system. Um, including basic primary care, uh, clean water, and so on. Um, yeah, I think um, there are no questions in the chat right now, but if anyone has a question, you can just please submit it in the chat. Um, there, at the same time, we speak about the issue right now of uh, vaccines, and we see the issue of both uh, vaccine hesitancy, but also the limited supply in the poor countries of the world. And um, I guess from your vantage point, having um, been both, um, uh, I guess, uh, from the point of view of dealing with the Minister of Health and knowing the politics uh, from the WHO and the world, how do we level the playing field during this difficult time? Well, I think um, 
this is a very important issue, but I actually think the world is doing it better than sometimes people give it credit for. I mean, by the end of this year, we will have vaccines manufactured for uh, the vast majority of the world's population. Um, and we have got to make sure that they get distributed. And countries like the UK that have a surplus of vaccines have made it clear that they will make any surplus vaccines available to uh, developing countries. We have people like... Um, you know, the Oxford AstraZeneca team, who um, I think have had unfair criticism um, and very little recognition of the fact that they are producing their vaccine at cost. So it is incredibly cheap. Uh, and they are, they've said they're not going to make any profits from the coronavirus pandemic. And that means that there is enormous potential for getting it out to developing countries at the lowest possible price. I think that... Um, you know, we have learned from the AIDS pandemic that it is immoral to have a cure for a disease that is only available to the rich world. And I think the real thing that will be transformational is to further speed up the processes that allow the development and approval of vaccines. I think we've actually seen some incredible progress in the last year. I hope with the new mRNA technology uh, that will happen even more quickly. Thanks very much. Okay, I think there are no questions at the present time, but we really appreciate you spending time with us and uh, giving us an idea from the point of view of personal stories, how it can lead to policy decisions and powerful sort of uh, movements. The next speaker, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jennifer Dardy. Um, I did not realize Jennifer, um, is um, in my neck of the woods in British Columbia here. Uh, but Jennifer joined the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Malaria Team as Deputy Director um, Surveillance Data and Epidemiology in February 2019. Before that, she spent 10 years at the British Columbia Center for Disease Control and the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health, uh, where she held a Canada Research Chair in public health genomics. Her research focused on the use of genomics as a tool to understand pathogen transmission and incorporated techniques drawn from uh, the uh, <coughs> genomics, bioinformatics, the modeling, information visualization, and social sciences. In 2018, Jennifer was named one of BC's most influential women in STEM by BC magazine, uh, Business Magazine and was named uh, one um, of the Government of Canada's 20 Women of Impact in STEM. In addition to Jennifer Sands work, Jennifer is also an award-winning science communicator hosted many episodes of science documentary television, including The Nature of Things, The Daily Plant, as well as authoring science books for children, including a new book to be released in 2021. Uh, Jennifer will be speaking about uh, towards a better pandemic peacetime, improving routine, infection disease surveillance, to better respond to future emergency benefits. 
Thanks, text, and hello, everyone. Uh, this next talk is going to be very different from Jeremy's. He shared really compelling personal stories from the patient perspective, and now we're going to zoom out and go from the level of the individual to the level of the entire population, whether that be in a city, in a country, uh, or across the globe. And I should mention today before I start that today I am representing the many of us at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who have infectious disease surveillance as part of our portfolio. And though my own work happens to focus on the malaria domain, all of us at uh, Gates Foundation take a very holistic view of disease surveillance. So as Chris Murray alluded to in the first talk in this session, no matter the disease, surveillance should never take place in a silo. Research should never take place in a silo. The lessons learned and the innovations deployed for one disease should always be extended across other diseases. And given the array of infections that can lead to sepsis, I think it really is an exemplar for the value of an integrated disease surveillance system. Now, the message I want to leave you with today is a very simple one. If we want to be able to better respond to future infectious disease emergencies, investing in improving and integrating routine infectious disease surveillance systems is absolutely vital. There is very little certainty when it comes to pandemics, but what is certain is that there will be more and that the surveillance tools that proved useful in our current pandemic with COVID-19, those tools will be needed again. And what's also certain is that if past experience is at all instructive, we do run a very real risk of some of the amazing systems that have been established or scaled up for COVID going dark in what I often refer to as pandemic peacetime, the time between emergencies. And if this happens, we're going to lose a lot of momentum when it comes to improving surveillance and connecting the dots between those platforms. So my call today is to not let the lessons of COVID-19 be lost and to build on some of the incredible innovations and incredible achievements in the surveillance space that we've seen over the last year, year plus, so that we are better prepared for the next emergency. And that the best way to build on those existing innovations and achievements is through integrating them into a truly cohesive and multi-platform system. So I want to highlight uh, two big picture themes that I think are helpful ways to frame how we look at a better and more integrated future state for infectious disease surveillance. And those two themes are, uh, first of all, the need for a truly integrated surveillance platform that comprises multiple interconnected platforms, both in the lab space and in the digital space. The second is taking a hybrid approach to surveillance where a broader set of actors beyond public health officials and agencies have a role to play and they have the resources that they need to contribute to an official response. So first, uh, let's look at the concept of an integrated surveillance platform in which multiple types of data are feeding into a public response. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a public health official and you are responsible for leading the COVID-19 response effort in your area. Broadly, 
there are three questions that you need real-time intelligence on. Uh, first, you need to know what's happening with respect to disease transmission in your region. And this encompasses everything from how much disease is out there, what sorts of variant viruses are circulating, how many people are vaccinated, how many people remain susceptible to infection, and so much more. The second thing you need to know is what do the trends and the modeling forecasts suggest in terms of a future trajectory for your region? And the third thing you want to know is what is the optimal set of interventions to deploy at what sort of coverage levels and where in order to see the biggest reduction in transmission? And I'm framing this in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, but these are the same questions myself and my colleagues ask of ourselves in malaria every day. Anyway, a truly integrated surveillance system is one that can answer all of these questions, and it's one where one type of data stream is feeding in and it's providing actionable information that can influence other parts of that surveillance system. So let's just take one of those questions, how many people remain susceptible to infection, and we can look at how I might answer that now where I live here in Chicago uh, versus how one of my colleagues in, uh, let's take Kaduna State in Nigeria as an example. Let's see how they would answer that. So the first thing both of us need is a population denominator. If we want to know how many people are susceptible to infection, we want to know how many people are in our region. Now in Chicago, I can grab that information easily from an open data portal that the city hosts and have resolution right down to the zip code level. Now in Kaduna, my colleague can do the same, but that data isn't coming from national census data. It's coming from a different type of resource. In this case, it's a resource called Grid3, where satellite imagery, like the same kind of satellite view you see on Google Maps, is actually used to map population density at a really high resolution. Uh, next, uh, I want to know how many people are no longer susceptible to COVID because they've already had an infection. So in Chicago, uh, we have widespread testing and very reliable reporting of results across a range of settings from urgent care to pharmacies to city-run testing sites. So again, I can go into that data portal and understand that since March 2020, my individual zip code has had about 2,500 cases and just over the last seven days we had 68 cases. Now, for my colleague in Kaduna, who's doing COVID-19 surveillance in her state, she looks at the data available to her, and she sees that all of Nigeria only reported 70 cases yesterday. She knows that can't be right, so she has to look to another surveillance system for that piece of information. One of the things she can look at is a cross-sectional zero survey uh, to assess population-level prior infection history, where you're looking for antibodies in people in the population that would indicate they'd been exposed to COVID before. So our next question is we want to know how many people are likely immune, not due to prior infection, but because they've received one or more doses of vaccine. So for that, myself and my colleague in Kaduna need to be able to access an electronic vaccine registry. And ideally, that is a vaccine registry that is cross-linked to my case registry, because there's going to be a portion of people who have had both COVID and have had a vaccine, and we want to make sure those aren't double counted. 
But there's another question you might want to ask on top of that. Which vaccines did those people receive and how effective are they against the variants that are circulating in a region? So for that, I need a way to capture vaccine effectiveness. Uh, this could be a linked database that connects test results to the vaccine registry so that if somebody who tests positive has had a vaccine, it will flag that, uh, that result for me. Uh, it could be something like a Sentinel clinician network, like uh, some settings used for monitoring influenza vaccine effectiveness. I also need a way to understand what's out there. Uh, that's genomic surveillance, uh, the DNA that can tell us, a DNA analysis that can tell us uh, what variants are circulating. Is this B117? Is this B1351? Is this P1? And we also need a way to understand what the immunological implications of circulating variants are. And that could be a functional genomics surveillance network that's connected to clinical samples and is testing them to see how effective is our vaccine against this particular variant. So you can see that for just one simple question that a public health official might want to ask, who in my jurisdiction is susceptible to the virus that's currently circulating, you need so many different types of surveillance information, of real-time intelligence. You need census information. You need satellite imagery for population density. You need a case reporting system. You need zero surveillance. You need a vaccine registry linked to that central case repository. You need a sentinel surveillance network, you need a genomic surveillance network, and you need advanced facilities that can do this sort of immunological and functional pathogen characterization. We do have those individual lab and digital building blocks now, but what we really truly need to do to harness their power in pandemic peacetime and before the next emergency is to connect them into a truly integrated system. Now, the second theme that I want to highlight also speaks to the need for integration, but here it's an integration of people and process, not platforms per se. And it's the idea of taking a hybrid approach to surveillance where a broader set of actors beyond public health officials have a role to play and the resources that they need to be able to contribute to an official response. So to explain this one, um, let's take a look at two tools that have played a very important role in public health for years, but who really got their turn in the spotlight with the pandemic. And those are genomic surveillance, uh, like the kind being used to identify and track variant lineages of COVID-19, uh, and mathematical modeling, uh, which is used to forecast pandemic trajectories and understand the effect of different combinations of interventions. Now, both genomic capacity and modeling capacity exist within some, um, but by no means all, public health agencies around the world. But those are two domains where no matter where you go in the world, from North America to Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa, you can usually find very good depth of bench in the academic uh, research institutes and even industrial domains. So successful genomic uh, responses and successful modeling responses during COVID-19 have very often been the result of pre-existing collaborations across those groups and having those collaborations be able to quickly pivot to COVID-19. So at the Gates Foundation, for example, we had the malaria mathematical modelers that we fund contributing to COVID modeling at levels from Seattle to an entire state like Illinois to an entire country 
like the UK to the entire world. And similarly, uh, teams that were using genomic analysis to track the malaria parasite or other pathogens like HIV and TB across sub-Saharan Africa, those were among the first African teams to generate and publish SARS-CoV-2 sequences from the continent because they had the infrastructure in place to do that work quickly without a, a long on-ramp of lead time. This is a hybrid system that is worth preserving going forward, building stronger pandemic peacetime links between groups with the technical ability, with the personnel resources, and with the enthusiasm to contribute in an emergency, and the public health agencies who need rapid access to this sort of capacity. I think in the places where these relationships were already established, the response moved a lot quicker um, because some of those basic issues around trust, around data sharing agreements, around understanding each other's communication styles and motivations, all of these things have been worked out in prior collaborations. Uh, I know many of you in the audience today might be coming from academic settings uh, and having been there myself for many years, I know that the funding situation is always a source of concern. So think, you know, what if there was a reliable source of funding outside traditional grant making institutions to support research groups to partner with public health agencies? Uh, in the $1.7 billion announcement of additional support to genomic surveillance of COVID-19 here in the States that the Biden administ administration may be the other day, uh, there is funding for exactly this, centers of excellence uh, for genomic epidemiology that bring academic researchers together with public health agencies. So I really think there's promise in this model of integrating academic expertise into a formal surveillance system, but it is going to require public health agencies to take a big step in working with academic partners, especially when it comes to making uh, patient level and population level data readily but safely available to these research teams. And it's going to take academic partners realizing that the environment that public health agencies operate in um, and the environment that they have to make decisions within is a very constrained one. Uh, and for many reasons, uh, from resource limitations to uh, political reputation and will, some of the things that an academic research group puts forward and might think are easy and simple to do uh, can be anything but. So uh, to summarize and wrap up uh, and go back to that core message that I gave you off the top, if we want to be able to better respond to future infectious disease emergencies, investing in improving and integrating routine infectious disease surveillance systems around the world from Asia to America to Africa is absolutely vital. And Jeremy Hunt just told us these resources need to be equitably distributed worldwide. And if we use these integrated systems every day for things like influenza, for things like febrile illness, or like HIV or TB, we will have the ability to mount a concerted, cohesive, and rapid response uh, the next time a global crisis comes around. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, I really appreciate uh, those remarks. I have a question from the audience. It says, uh, hi, Jennifer. I agree that a functional disease surveillance will be key to management uh, of any pandemic, though this remains a tough task in some countries. The data protection laws need to be revised. Can you comment on this, please? Yeah, so 
I think when it comes to data protection laws, one of the best things that you can have in your corner is an integrated approach to those data protection laws and one that is really driven by uh, public health needs uh, and public health evidence as well. So I think what you need, first of all, is a coordinating body with the agency and the authority to issue guidelines around the appropriate use of data in public health emergencies. And WHO has taken a really fantastic role, particularly over the last two years in issuing some guidance uh, around more unique forms of data surveillance. For example, how do you share pathogen genomic data uh, in an infectious disease outbreak or a public health emergency of international concern? Uh, we're also seeing, for example, entities like the Africa CDC, which is uh, an institute under the African Union, so it has a continent-wide mandate to be able to issue policy um, and issue guidance around what member states should do. Uh, and what you're seeing again in places like Africa CDC is really careful consideration of data privacy concerns, data sharing concerns, um, but using those to create a data sharing framework that is responsive to member states' concerns, but is based on evidence and is flexible enough to permit the type of data sharing um, that needs to exist in these emergencies. And it, it's funny, I mean, it really does take, in some cases, just a single individual to change the continental perspective. So in WHO Afro, for example, uh, Dr. Moedi, the, the director there, she almost single-handedly got every African member state um, who are collecting data on a series of neglected tropical diseases to put their data at um, a subnational, a district level resolution into a publicly available um, public good called ESPEN. It's a portal for neglected tropical disease data. Um, and it was really sort of one woman from WHO who convinced countries that the benefit to sharing their data uh, to them and to their citizens far outweighs any of the concerns that they might have. So uh, never underestimate the power of a big institution and never underestimate the power of a single individual when it comes to changing things. Yeah, thanks very much. Now, another um, concern and question um, is the issue of um, the cultural sort of, um, I guess, uh, issues in many countries where the issue of disease is uh, the individuals in the countries themselves see if we uh, report these diseases, uh, there would be measures that, in their view, would be draconian and would be against their best interests. So, for instance, in Ebola, um, you know, there were the issue of the um, uh, cultural practices of burial, et cetera, where individuals started um, even refusing to go to medical institutions, hospitals, et cetera. Yeah, um, a great. Um, I think this is a a great example of how using these systems in that pandemic peacetime period between emergencies um, gives you benefit down the road when an emergency does happen. Because when you've got a strong surveillance system, when you've got a strong healthcare system, and people can see how health data is being collected and used to improve their day-to-day -day lives, that really goes a long way towards building trust in a public health system. So when citizens of a country can see that um, by, for example, the 
pharmacy that they go to, the private sector pharmacy, sharing data about the number of malaria uh, medications that they dispense, when they can see that translating into better malaria policy and they're getting bed net distributions more frequently um, or they're not experiencing stockouts of malaria medicines, when they start to see a difference in their own lives, uh, that really does go a long way to engendering trust in the system. So when a crisis does come around, um, the, the public is a lot more responsive to any of the measures that uh, a public health agency might be putting into place. But it also speaks to one of my favorite points that I like to make, which is that part of any infectious disease response, part of that first wave of responders, it can't just be epidemiologists. You need to have anthropologists and social sciences uh, scientists embedded in that response too, to truly understand the context in which these things are happening. No, thanks very much. There's another question here, um, um, and which uh, is, why should low- and middle-income countries contribute to global uh, northern-led genomic researchers when their commitment to equitable distribution of the fruits of this re research remains so muted? And uh, basically, the, um, the questioner uh, 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 raised the point that COVID has really um, shown that very clearly. Yeah, this is another fantastic point. And I think, you know, this is something that we, uh, in particular on the malaria team at the Gates Foundation, but I know my colleagues are very committed to this as well. Um, we want to move the data generation to those LMICs. We want the work to be done and fully owned by scientists in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Um, so I think the world really does need to uh, step back take a very real and hard look about, um, you know, in the funding community, for example, where is our money going uh, and make an active intentional effort to move those finances to places like sub-Saharan Africa. There was a fantastic piece in Nature Medicine um, just a few days ago, actually, um, by a team of scientists, uh, many of whom I've worked with in sub-Saharan Africa, calling on the international funding community to do exactly this, whether it's for genomic surveillance, whether it's for vaccine development platforms, um, whether it's for developing digital tools for public health surveillance, the work needs to happen in the places where diseases are affecting these populations. And uh, there really is, I'll just come out and say it, there is no excuse for a funding agency to concentrate its funds exclusively in the global north and to invest in institutions that perpetuate um, the extractive nature of taking IP uh, from other LMICs. So it has to change. We're certainly trying to do our part, um, but it's a major problem. And the international funding community really does need to get on board with being more intentional about where our dollars go. Mm -hmm. Now, um, another guest um, asked a question. Um, they're from Africa and they're seeing the recurrence of COVID-19 twice in the same patient. Do you have any idea? Oh, yeah. Uh, reinfections are rare, um, but they certainly do happen. And as we have more and more circulating variants, especially things like P1, which we know from genomic surveillance in Brazil is uh, responsible for a very large proportion of breakthrough infections or reinfections, um, we know that these will happen. And I think it just speaks to the value of a good, strong surveillance system. Um, when you have the ability to identify uh, when these reinfections are occurring, when you have the ability to understand understand if that's a patient that had a prior COVID diagnosis, a confirmed diagnosis, or a patient that had a vaccine, and we're talking about a breakthrough infection, that's really powerful information. 
for how a public health agency approaches its response going forward or modifies it. So those uh, reinfections certainly do happen and um, having a strong surveillance system to pick those up and to understand the implications um, is, is a really critical part of the response. Okay, no, thanks very much in the interest of time. We have to move on, but you can see your talk has generated a lot of interest and I would uh, recommend um, to those um, in the audience to keep your questions um, coming along and we can always uh, forward some of the questions. Really appreciate you um, uh, participating. The next presentation is going to be by Dr. Hans Klug, uh, the WHO Regional Director for Europe. His term began in 1st of February 2020 following his nomination by the WHO Regional Committee for Europe and appointment by the WHO Executive Board. Throughout his career, beginning as a family doctor in Belgium, along a journey to Somalia, Liberia, and the prisons of Siberia, the former Soviet Union countries, Myanmar, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and most recently, leading the Division of Health Systems and Public Health at WHO Europe for a decade, Dr. Klug has always been committed to achieving better health for all with a focus on the vulnerable. As regional director, Dr. Klug's vision for the WHO European region is United Action for Better Health, working in partnership to achieve universal health coverage, address health emergencies, and promote healthier populations. Uh, Dr. Klug uh, will be uh, giving us a presentation via video because of his uh, inordinately busy schedule. Dear colleagues and friends, many thanks to the Global Sepsis Alliance for the opportunity of being with you today. We all know and understand that sepsis is and was a global health crisis even before the arrival of SARS-CoV-2, affecting up to 15 million people globally every year and directly leading to over 10 million deaths. Today, Many patients affected by COVID-19 will die from sepsis and its complications. Many of you participating today are on the front line of our efforts to care for and treat those most severely affected by this virus. To those of you working in high dependency and intensive care units, as well as other settings, thank you so much for your professionalism and dedication. The challenges caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus are unprecedented and the tragedy of so many deaths is immeasurable. Yet a silver of hope amid the pandemic is the opportunity to rethink health and shed light on other health threats that deserve greater attention. Today, more than a year into the pandemic, there are many unanswered questions on SARS-CoV-2, infection pathogenesis. Some COVID-19 patients progress to a severe stage of the disease, including those who develop sepsis, and the scale of services has put existing systems to the test. So when WHO calls for reflections on the standard of care at all levels of healthcare provision, it is with the aim of improving the quality and safety of care 
and removing shortfalls. The magnitude of the emergency we face offers a vital opportunity to find ways to better manage sepsis. This benefits COVID-19 patients, but also any sepsis patient. Joining the global platform of therapeutic research under the ACT Accelerator promotes the harmonization of research protocols and pools and generates data from participants. Working together globally contributes to improving quality faster. Throughout the response to COVID-19, we have been seeing increasing inappropriate use of antibiotics, contributing further to what is called the silent pandemic of antimicrobial resistance. Research conducted through our behavioral and culture insights unit in nine countries in November last year shows a concerning rise in the use of antibiotics to prevent COVID-19. Of those self-medicating with antibiotics, 79 to 96% reported not having been infected with COVID-19, but believed antibiotic use would prevent infection. Massive amounts of antimicrobials were administered worldwide for a couple of months, and the impact of this is still unknown. No experimental intervention with an alleged effect on viral replication by antimalarials, antibiotics, antiparasitic or antiretroviral drugs was found to be effective as of now. In contrast to influenza or other viral respiratory infections, secondary bacterial infections are notably less frequent, prompting a rethinking of antibiotic use. So how do we optimize the management of severe COVID-19 patients? Which antibiotics do you use? Irrespective of a country's development status, it is paramount that health authorities create opportunities and coordinate research studying how to effectively manage COVID-19 and patients with post-COVID-19 conditions, as well as survivors of post-intensive care syndrome following COVID-19. The goal is to find solutions feasible and efficient. According to PubMed, an average of 450 articles have been published per day on COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 virus since the pandemic's onset. Translating scientific evidence on COVID-19 has forced us to review service training options, making them easily accessible to frontline workers. Open WHO comprises a large portfolio of online courses on infection prevention, control, management of severe acute respiratory infections, including sepsis and antimicrobial stewardship. Absorbing the fast-evolving context and revising skills and procedures is of huge importance, particularly when health staff are deployed to places facing care challenges requiring renewed awareness to sepsis signs and symptoms. WHO in the European region is increasing its focus on the quality and safety of healthcare. And when seeking to improve the quality of healthcare, several interventions must be considered. Enhancing clinical practice on the front line, engaging and empowering patients and communities, educating healthcare workers and policymakers, and establishing performance-based incentives, plus legislation frameworks.
tomorrow in Athens, together with the Minister of Health of Greece, we will launch a long-awaited initiative to establish a new center of excellence on quality of care and patient safety that will contribute to delivering the EPW, European Program of Work, 2020-2025. The EPW provides a valuable opportunity to reflect on the coherence of structures and resources for quality healthcare and patient safety. And how these are translated into policy and technical assistance at regional, sub-regional and country level. Thank you, Greece. The EPW has a strong focus on universal health coverage, emphasizing the importance of quality of care and patient safety across all levels of health systems and beyond, while taking a life course approach that supports healthy aging and quality of services. Nearly a year and a half into the pandemic, there are not only unanswered questions, but also countless lessons that can help reducing the burden of sepsis. Let me recap some of these early lessons. One, vaccinate. Two, recognize deterioration of COVID-19 as early as possible. Three, ensure quality and safety of care. Four, research and then research some more. Five, provide equal access to all. I will leave you with a note on the future. Crises as a rule bring about change. And it is my sincere conviction that the many lessons from the pandemic will, in time, help reduce the overall burden of sepsis. A medical emergency that causes one in five deaths worldwide. You have my full support. Thank you and good luck to us all for the patients and the people. Inspiring talk and we really appreciate your help. I think that um, you've really raised some very good points um, concerning the issue of um, equity for all and the issue of um, going forward and creating centers of excellence and um, uh, really raising the profile of sepsis. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, Dr. Klug is not live, so um, question, we, there will be no questions that he can take. I see some questions in the chat that um, pertain to some of the clinical aspects of uh, COVID-19 and sepsis. And there are sessions that, um, following sessions, that will um, have speakers who would be able to answer some of those questions. So um, I would encourage everyone to look at the entire program and you will see uh, sessions that would pertain to many of the questions that you're asking at the present time. I'm pleased to say that we have over 1,600 individuals who have joined live um, for this session, and um, the numbers are increasing, and we hope that um, you will spread the word um, to your colleagues about the other sessions and the importance of uh, uh, this, um, this uh, uh, Congress. It is now my pleasure to introduce to you uh, the Honorable Dr. Keith Martin, uh, my good friend and the founding executive director of the Consortium of Universities for Global Health. Uh, Keith, um, between 1993 and 2011, he served as a member of Parliament in Canada's House of Commons, representing 
arriving in British Columbia, here where I live. He held shadow ministerial portfolios in foreign affairs, international development and health, and served as Canada's Parliamentary Secretary uh, of Defence. He's a member of the Queen's Privy Council. Uh, his primary areas of interest are global health, foreign policy, international development, conservation, and the environment. Keith has been on numerous diplomatic missions to areas in crisis. He's practiced as a physician on the Mozambique border during the country's civil war and has traveled widely in Africa. He spent many years volunteering on conservation efforts in South Africa. He has authored more than 170 published editorial pieces and has appeared frequently as a commentator on television and radio. So it is my pleasure to turn uh, the microphone over now to Keith. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Tex. It's, it's wonderful to be here and to be with all of you. Uh, I'd first like to thank uh, uh, Dr. Kassoon, um, Dr. Malik, uh, Mr. Zick, and the team for the fabulous job that they're doing in putting on this important, uh, very important uh, conference. So what I'd like to do is, is take a look at pandemics perhaps from a, from a different angle, a very important angle and something that we want to all pay close heed to. And that's in the area, of course, of, of politics. Now, we know that politics always matters, but politics never matters more than when you're dealing with a crisis. And I think all of us have seen this very clearly over the last uh, year plus. So what I'm going to do is take a, a look down together, we'll take a little voyage through what works, what doesn't work in the face of a pandemic and some of the things that we can do in support and being able to move forward to prevent, detect and respond to pandemics. Because as Jennifer mentioned and others, we're in a pandemic now, but there's certainly going to be future outbreaks in, in, and uh, certainly uh, epidemics and hopefully not pandemics, but that remains a risk. So let's get started. Now, this is, of course, the perfect storm. This is where spillover events, spillover events occur. You've got wild animals, you've got food, you've got people and pets all scrunched together in one terrible, perfect storm where a spillover event can occur. So our challenge is how do we actually prevent, detect, and respond to environments like this? Well, first, let's take a look at a little bit of history. Rudolf Virchow, when he was in, in Silesia in 1848, uh, trying to deal with the typhus um, uh, epidemic at that point in time, made it very clear that medicine is a social science, but politics is nothing but medicine on a large scale. So he actually raised the big flag and warning for us that we need to get involved in politics if we are going to be able to deal with big challenges, big health challenges, like this. And he had a lot of problems at that time, if you look at the history, in mobilizing political attention, but he, ultimately he was successful. But his voice rings down through time to us today, and it's something that we need to heed. So where were we before COVID? So let's take a look. These were the countries that were best prepared to deal with a pandemic, and you can see that pre-COVID, the U.S. was number one, United Kingdom two, Netherlands, Australia, Canada, etc. But how did that actually help play out when the stress of uh, SARS-CoV-2 started? Well, it's a different story. If you look, and this is I took out of March, uh, just of the end of last year, deaths, COVID 
uh, 19 deaths per 100,000 population. Well, the United Kingdom, which was apparently the second best prepared pre-COVID, actually has the ninth highest death rate. The United States, the 13th highest death rate. Now, if you look at the bottom, the only country that really tracked well to its uh, pre-COVID state was actually Australia. And other countries like South Korea, Taiwan, and others responded very, very well. So why is that so? The political determinants of an effective pandemic response. As I mentioned, political choices matter. And I think we've seen very clearly around the world where those choices actually work well and where they did not. And those choices, though, are in fact a matter of life and death. So those countries that demonstrated strong national leadership, the, where the governments knew how to deal with uncertainty or learned how to deal with uncertainty, those that provided clear, consistent, frequent public communication to the to their to their uh, to the public, those uh, governments where their messages and actions actually followed the science, those that acted early and decisively, again following the science, and where the pandemic was not politicized, where there was not a low level, where there was where there were low levels of corruption, and where governments didn't behave in an autocratic or nationalistic way. In these, in these uh, environments, these are the best environments where the political response was most effective. So, but those political responses and those political determinants actually have an interplay with other factors, and you cannot divorce the political from the social. So let's take a look at some of the social determinants of an effective pandemic response. That's the other half of this coin. So if there were strong public trust in government, if, the public, if there was public trust in science in the medical system, as opposed to those who didn't believe in science or their medical system, if there was an existing effective health and pandemic response system, if the population health expenses were covered, so in other words, if you got sick, you didn't have to worry about whether you'd be able to afford it. You could just go into the health care system and you'd get covered and get treated. And this is very important, as we found in, uh, in various parts of the world, particularly in, in Asia, where they actually decided to cover uh, expenses. And of course, in Europe, the culture of individualism versus a collective response is it I'm for myself and whatever you do is yours had a very significant impact, as opposed to where there was a sense of a collective response that we are all in this together and we all need to work on this together to have to deal with the, the challenge before us. And did a country have a history and a memory of a prior pandemic, example, SARS in Asia? If you had that memory, you were primed to be able to respond more effectively uh, to it. So what happens when things go wrong. And I think all of us have seen this around the world, but if we wanna bring it together and synthesize it, what does it look like? Well, the converse is if the national leadership was weak, slow and fractured. If there was a lack of trust in the government, if there was corruption, if the government failed to follow the science and didn't put science and the public health professionals up front to be able to, to, to lead and to listen to them and to convey their messages. If the pandemic was politicized, if parties used the pandemic to actually use it as a hammer to be able to bash their other political opponents, if there was confusing, inconsistent communication on the part of the leaders of the country, 
And again, if there's a culture of individualism, and by that I mean, if we all think we're out for ourselves, it really distracts and weakens the ability for us to deal with the pandemic, where we all have to, of course, be able to work together to be able to work for our collective and individual benefits. If there's a lack of a national health insurance, in other words, if people worried about being able to pay their bills, they didn't get care. So it really impeded the ability of to having a, a good response. And again, if you have a weak public health care system in particular, it bodes poorly for your ability to deal with the, the pandemic. An example of this at the end of March, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who was on the White House pandemic response, she did an interview that basically where she said that over after the first 100,000 deaths in the United States, the next 450,000 deaths were largely preventable. Now, President Trump responded to that and said, regarding recommendations from his task force, his White House task force, he said, quote, I almost always overturn them. And we've seen the consequences of that here in the United States, where there are more than 468,000 people who sadly, tragically have died, most of those preventable. Now, politics, of course, doesn't only affect a country, but there's also significant politics in, in, in geopolitics. In the, in internationally, as we all know, and none uh, were bore out more clearly than at the WHO, where there were certainly questions about its independence from China, about the, the, the transparency of the data and the decision-making that was enmeshed in some very serious um, political uh, issues swirling around the WHO. But I think we all have to understand that the WHO is really us, and it's us who actually enable us in countries to make to determine the fate of the WHO, which, of course, we absolutely want it to be, and it needs to be a strong, the strong international public health uh, agency for global public health. So the WHO we know is, is underfunded. Too much of its funding comes from voluntary con contributions as opposed to assessed contributions. So if you're the director general, you have to, you have little idea of where a bulk of your resources are coming from every year. And this is not a way to lead, uh, to be able to lead a big, important, vital organization like the WHO. Again, it's subjects to its members' interests, funding, support, access, and the information it provides. So that, that, that's a very serious challenge to the ability of the WHO to do its job. And as I mentioned, it's, it's, it is, as an organization, it's member states. It is us. So it's up to us to be able to engage in actions that reform it. So what can we do? What are the next steps that we can do to improve our pandemic response? What can we do to better prevent, detect, and respond to those spillovers that will definitely come? And how can we prevent things from moving towards an epidemic or a pandemic stage? Well, here's two. The first, strengthen the global health security agenda. That was created after the Ebola crisis in West Africa, and 69 countries uh, plus other INGOs have signed onto it, more than 100 companies. We need to focus on that structure, which already exists, and strengthen it. That's our best, quickest, fastest, and most effective way to be able to uh, strengthen our pandemic response capacity. And number two, strengthen Gabi to 
deal with the issues that were mentioned before about equitability and vaccine access and to be able to produce vaccines that are, are equitably distributed around the world. As Dr. Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, used to say is that a weak health system anywhere is a weak health system everywhere. So we need to, to be able to, to be more effective at being able to address that. And with regard to this WHO, here are four reforms that we uh, need to get behind in being able to support this. And by we, I'm talking about our countries. When we go to the, to the World Health Assembly, we need to assert, uh, I would suggest, these four reforms. One is help to protect the Secretariat and its regional offices from political interference by member states and to, by improving transparent oversight of their activities from the Secretariat to those regional offices. Second, create an independent office of evaluation for WHO activities. Third, create an independent data board that reviews and validates data and reports their findings publicly. So what that data board does is it will assert and share publicly the information that it finds. And in that way, you're disarticulating the science and the scientific, vital scientific work of the WHO from any kind of potential political interference by its member states. And finally, as I mentioned, you cannot function and plan and implement the WHO's uh, mandate if you're trying to beg for money every year. So we need to flip the, flip the coin and ensure that at least 60% of the budget of the WHO comes from assessed contributions as opposed to these um, uh, voluntary contributions every year. Finally, from a country perspective, something that all of us can do as constituents and as voters, is we need to push for certain priorities to be strengthened within our own countries. First, strengthen health systems, public health systems, so that they're accessible to all. Affordable quality health care, of course, is, is vital. And that's entwined with the ability to have universal health coverage. Strengthen public institutions, it's not only ministries of health that will prevent, detect, and respond to pandemics, but we only have to have effective justice systems, finance systems, and how to pay for things, public works, and importantly, the environment. We cannot forget that many pandemic, uh, many sort of spillovers are actually rooted in environmental degradation and biodiversity losses. So we need to hone our, our, our attention on that existential crisis, which is the loss of ecosystem services and the loss of biodiversity that's occurring around the world, which is a major risk factor for pandemics. We need to address disinformation, which is one of the top 10 uh, global health threats, according to the WHO and others. Address, again, the environmental causes of spillover and help to diversify critical supply chains so we're not all embedded into, into the systems that we've had. And we certainly have seen through this pandemic what happens when we're too beholden to a limited number of supply chains. Finally, we know pandemics are going to occur in the future. And this is, as we build forward better, we have an opportunity to strengthen public healthcare systems, deal with environmental challenges, and be able to implement those structures, as I mentioned before, that we're able to, to, uh, to uh, advance, fund, and create that will enable us all to be more effective at preventing uh, the future, future pandemics. Uh, we've seen the cost of the pandemics and certainly the cost to prevent the current pandemic would have been far less if we had actually taken uh, our uh, ability to uh, respond and prevent pandemics more seriously earlier on.
And my last and perhaps most important uh, message goes back to the original comment and quote I gave from Dr. Virchow. He challenged us in 1848 to get politically active. You don't have to get partisan, but the, but the people move the political. And if we want to get the things done that I mentioned in this talk, if, I want, if we want to be able to do what was mentioned by other speakers in this session and future speakers that you will hear, that um, we have to all get political and we all have to be involved and push for things uh, in our political spheres. And finally, I'd like to thank, uh, again, the organizers, but importantly, to thank all of the healthcare workers, frontline workers around the world who have kept us safe, cared for us, saved lives, and kept the supply chains going so we can actually be able to live our lives. Some of you have laid down your lives for us, uh, tragically. Others continue to work. But from all of us, I'd like to thank you very much for what you have all done. Thanks so much. And text over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Keith, for this um, sort of wide-ranging, thoughtful uh, presentation. Um, there are a few questions that are coming up or comments in the chat that pertains to what you're saying. And there seems to be a couple of things dealing with the issue of scientists and politicians. And um, one um, comment is, um, it seems that a lot of scientists are being politicized. But on the other hand, um, uh, there is also um, the question of, should we give scientists more power? Because it seems that many a time uh, they may have an idea of what is coming down the pipe, but it is sort of um, moderated by the government with, and policymakers that may not be in the best interest of the people. Well, politicians have to make decisions based on many things, but I think it's important for politicians to be able to communicate clearly to the public in terms of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it's their responsibility as politicians to be able to use the science to be able to base their policies on the science. If they're not doing that, then they need to communicate that. But the public needs to be aware of all arguments, scientific arguments, as well as the political arguments to be able to make their own uh, decisions uh, accordingly. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Now, um, one of the issues is that obviously this has been a fast moving pandemic. Um, the fact is it's been a novel sort of um, experience for every one of us and we are in uncharted territories. And there are things that will, uh, we learn along the way. And uh, one of the uh, comments that are being raised again is that, um, that how do you communicate that to the public? And when things go wrong, or there's a presumption of going wrong, um, do you have any um, experience? How do you get it back on track that you have the public uh, believe in, in um, the messaging from the uh, central authorities? I think it's honesty, Tex. When you're dishonest, then you actually erode the trust that the public has in you as a politician. I think people uh, will trust you more if you're honest. I think that the, for example, right now with the uh, some of the side of some of the uh, complications of a couple of the vaccines, being able to uh, be able to share that information publicly quickly in a timely fashion. Um, People trust you more. It's a it's a process, but if you are continuing to be honest, telling the good and the bad together, the public will begin to trust you. If you fail to do that, then the public will. It's very quickly to to sow mistrust. It's very difficult to bring that trust back. So the best course of action is always be honest with the public, tell the good with the bad, and that's what happened in Taiwan, Hong Kong, 
uh, South Korea, they were very clear with their public and the public trusts them because they've told the truth. Okay, no, thanks. And the final question is, how do you decide preparation level? A question from the UK, the UK, a nurse in the UK. How do you do what, sorry? Um, what, in one of your slides, you spoke about different countries um, yes. that were rated in preparation um, level. How do you decide that? How do they decide it? Well, it's a choice on the part of the country that if you, if you particularly as in those countries that had experience in, in Asia with SARS, they prepared in advance. They had uh, surveillance systems. They had public health care systems. They knew what needed to be done to be able to prevent, detect, and respond as best that they can. Uh, they inured the public in, in terms of what you need to do as a member of the public to be able to protect yourself and others. I think it's, it's for those that had an experience, they tended to, to, as a public that had experienced the pandemic, they responded better. Here, I'm a kilometer north of the White House. Here, so many people, I mean, they, the country doesn't have really a response with the pandemic, and therefore they didn't take it as seriously, um, and perhaps in many cases still don't. So um, it, the, the governments implement the structures necessary to be able to prevent, detect, and respond. Uh, they also communicate clearly to the public, and the public um, ha again, having some experience with uh, pandemics helped a great deal. Culture matters. And I think, as I said, those cultures, those societies where people do feel a responsibility to, to take care of others, they responded better than those who felt that people you can do whatever you want because I have the freedom to do what I want. Well, yes, and also there's a cost to that. And we're seeing that tragically borne out here. Well, thank you very much, Keith. I'd like to introduce the final speaker for this session, uh, Dr. Pauline Patterson, who is an uh, assistant professor of, in the Department of Infectious Disease, Epidemiology in the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, um, UK, and is a co-director of the Vaccine Confidence Project. Dr. Patterson has been researching issues of public confidence and immunizations since 2011, um, is co-leading a recent study in England exploring parents of young children experience of vaccination during the pandemic and their COVID-19 vaccine acceptance. Dr. Patterson is a member of the National Institute of Health Research, Health Protection Research Unit in Immunization, and has an honorary academic contract uh, with, the public health, with Public Health England. Dr. Patterson has a PhD in epidemiology, and an MBA and MSc from the Imperial College London. Pauline, it's yours. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you to the organizers. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. So, so I'll be exploring vaccine hesitancy, the biggest global health threat. After clean water, vaccination is the most effective public health intervention in the world for saving lives and promoting good health. While most people vaccinate, some groups or individuals delay or refuse vaccines, and this can lead to vaccine refusals and disease outbreaks. The term vaccine hesitancy refers to a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite availability of vaccination services. Research has shown that it is complex and context-specific, and it varies across time, across place, and across vaccines. And it includes um, factors such as the 3C model. So complacency, which is a lack of perceived need or value for a vaccine. Convenience, which is a lack of access to the vaccine in terms of 
for example, cost or uh, geographical location, if the vaccination clinic is far away from your home, for example, and confidence, and not just confidence in the vaccine, but also confidence in the provider, confidence in the process. There is a vaccine hesitancy continuum. So there are those that do refuse all vaccines. Um, you'll see here on the top of the pyramid, but there's not, not many people generally in this group, although they do have a, a louder voice. So you may hear them more on social media. Um, there are some that... There are some people that delay some vaccines, but vaccinate against others. And, and then there are those, the majority of people do accept vaccines. And, and this ranges from some that are hesitant, so they have questions or concerns, but comply with the recommended schedule. There are those that accept cautiously, so they have more concerns, but they hope nothing goes wrong. And then there are those with unquestioning acceptance. At the Vaccine Confidence Project, we developed a vaccine confidence index to track public trust in vac vaccines around the globe. There were four key components to this, um, the four key questions in this survey. So the first was a statement, overall, I think vaccines are important. The second was, um, overall, I think vaccines are safe. The third was, overall, I think vaccines are effective. And the fourth was, um, vaccines are compatible with my religious beliefs. And people could respond to this on a Likert scale from strongly agree to strongly disagree. And we conducted the largest study to date, and we did this over several years. And, um, and we started in 2015, and the latest data was in, in 2019. And what you see here is a, a heat map for the term vaccines are safe. So, so the orange uh, is countries where people were thinking vaccines are not safe. Um, whereas blue, people are thinking vaccines are safe, the majority of the respondents. Um, and, and we surveyed over 284,000 individuals in 149 countries. And, and what we could see is that in, in 2015, what we identified was that the European region had low confidence in vaccines. This, this um, figure that you see is just a summary of some of the data that we we conducted. And also what you can see is public confidence in vaccines varies widely between countries. But also here we're looking at countries, but, but when, when you're doing research or, or, or part of a vaccine program in a country, um, it's really important not just to look at the country level, but also to look at the regional, the subpopulation level as well. So this gives you an indication of, of where there might be lower confidence or, or dips in confidence over time. And it can help you identify where, where there might be a need to, to build trust to optimize uptake of existing and new vaccines, uh, such as the COVID vaccine. With every outbreak is accompanied a, a wave of information and with information will be misinformation and rumors. Dr. Tedros Adhanom, the Director General of WHO, warned against an infodemic of rumors and misinformation that needs to be fought alongside this COVID pandemic. With the internet and social media, individuals are more informed and empowered than ever before. However, they are also more exposed to misinformation, conflicting information and information overload. With the internet, there's, there's just so much information. You can pretty much find any information you're looking for, you'll, you'll find it on the internet. And with social media and the internet concerns, can spread very quickly and far very quick, very quickly. Uh, we conducted a, a study at the Vaccine Confidence Project with colleagues looking at the impact of 
online misinformation around the COVID-19 vaccine in the US and in the UK. And what we found was that being exposed to misinformation around the vaccine reduces reduce people's intent on on wanting the COVID vaccine. So although there's been lots of studies showing that uh, people don't necessarily trust information they found on the internet, this this study uh, we conducted does show that although although, people don't trust it, it still can influence people's intentions. So that's definitely something bearing in mind. There's already been a, a number of studies looking at COVID vaccination uh, acceptance around the world. And, and this just gives you a flavor of what's out there. It's not a um, systematic review, but it's just a, a you can see. So, so th- and, and also what I've um, put in these in the blue is, is acceptance around a novel COVID-19 vaccine for these different countries. And, and where there's a range, it means there's been a different studies that have come up with a different figure. But, but what you can see is that there's variation in acceptance around COVID vaccine by country, but also worth bearing in mind as well is it really depend when when people ask the question that like would you and how you ask the question like if you ask the question if a vaccine becomes available and is recommended for me I would get it that was in in a study in America whereas in a study in Australia the the statement was if a COVID vaccine becomes available I will get it so so depending on how the question is asked and also the options of answering um, whether you get an unsure or whether you get a I don't know or wh- what you force people <laughs> to answer in terms of how many options you give them, you will get different answers as well. And, and also um, people's answers will depend on external influences and, and what's happening at the time that you're asking as well. Uh, there has been a study, the study by Lazarus et al. in Nature Medicine was conducted in, in 19 countries. So, so you can compare the data there. Um, and it was done at the same time period. At the Health Protection Research Unit in Immunization, we conducted a study with parents and guardians of young children. And we, we asked parents of, uh, and guardians of young children, if a new coronavirus vaccine became available, would you accept the vaccine for yourself? And they had the choice of yes, definitely, unsure but leaning towards yes, uh, unsure but leaning towards no, no, definitely. So we didn't give them, give them a middle answer. We really wanted to know which way they were leaning. But not, we were pleasantly surprised. 90% responded yes. This was a survey that was done in the UK with 1,252 parents. So, and, and this was last spring. So we were, so that's so many people want the vaccine. That's really great. And um, the main reasons for accepting the vaccine are to protect themselves, others, their family, to stay safe for their children, to look after their children, to stop the need for social distancing. And the main reasons why people were more hesitant were concerns around safety. Uh, concerns around it being a new vaccine, and you do see this with other vaccines, with new vaccines in other countries as well. Um, but with with the coronavirus vaccines, there have been also concerns around the process being rushed because these vaccines have been produced faster than any others before, and and uh, concerns around not enough evidence, not enough research. Uh, some people they don't want the vaccine not because they're worried about the vaccine, but they're not in an at risk group, so they'd rather that someone who needed it more would would get the vaccine. And there were concerns about lack of effectiveness as well. At the beginning, it wasn't clear whether whether the vaccine would reduce transmission and whether it would reduce um, severe COVID or not initially. It wasn't clear back then. Um, Some key findings we found was that ethnic minority groups 
uh, were almost three times more likely to, to, to not accept the vaccine for themselves um, than, than the white British, white Irish and white other respondents. And also what we found was that lower income households were also more likely to reject a COVID vaccine. Um, the main purpose of our study initially was to, to look at parents and guardians' views and experiences of accessing routine childhood vaccinations um, during the pandemic. Um, in the first lockdown, it wasn't quite clear whether uh, vaccinations were ongoing or not. So, so we did find that in our results that one in five participants were uncertain about whether vaccinations were taking place. 86% of participants agree that it is important for children to continue to be vaccinated during the pandemic, but one in four had experienced issues or difficulties. So, so, so things weren't clear whether it was going to happen or not. It was tricky to, to book the appointment. There was uncertainty as to what measures had been put in place to keep patients safe. And yeah, people were worried about contracted COVID while they were going to get their child vaccinated. But, but for those parents that did go and get their children vaccinated, they were reassured because there were procedures in place, like they would wait outside, um, there, would be, there would be no one else in the waiting room, the door would be open for them, the staff were wearing masks, so they could clean their hands, the appointment was very fast. So, so they were really reassured, they felt that um, there, were, there were procedures in place to keep everything COVID safe. So just finally, my last two slides. So what can you do to address vaccine hesitancy? Well, you can identify regions with low vaccine coverage uh, within your country, uh, or if there are dips in coverage, but, but also there are sometimes delays in getting coverage data. So, so at the Vaccine Confidence Project, we conduct a combination of social media monitoring, uh, surveys, interviews, focus groups to, to collect data to see what's happening and if there might be questions, concerns, dips in, in confidence around vaccines. And then when you do identify areas where there might be um, members of the population that aren't vaccinating or have concerns, you can investigate the reasons uh, for this hesitancy and for refusal. And then, and then it's really important to do that and not just assume uh, why people, you know, in the past, um, the assumption would be, oh, we just need to communicate louder and we need to educate more. But, but that's not... That, necessarily the solution. You really need to figure out why people aren't vaccinating and then, and then, and then um, address those underlying issues with evidence-informed responses. And, and to finish, I just really wanted to highlight that for successful immunization, you need all three of these components. You need a healthcare worker who is trained, supported, and satisfied. You need an immunization system which makes available safe and effective vaccines in a timely and equitable manner. And you need a family, um, patients who are aware of the vaccine, perceive a need to vaccinate and trust the vaccine provider policy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pauline. Um, um, this is a very uh, important subject at the present time. And in fact, in North America, we are seeing the same thing as vaccine hesitancy among minority groups and um, sort of racialized populations. Um, much of it in North America, it seems to do, uh, at least in the U.S., the legacy of um, the discrimination, suppression, Tuskegee experiment, etc. cetera. Mm. And in Canada, it's the very same thing with lack of trust in the healthcare system and um, feeling as if they're marginalized within health. Um, do you have any reason for the reasons within the U.K.? Yeah, I think... Um 
Where there has been investigations of lower vaccination rates, it has been identified among ethnic minorities and deprived groups, and the suggested reasons are similarly. So there, there is a lack of trust as well. Um, there have been some access barriers, a lack of offer, and, and then um, perceptions of risk have been low or a lack of communication so from trusted providers and community leaders. So it's really important um, not just to figure out why people aren't vaccinating, but also who, who, where people go for information, um, what information they trust, and, and, and to ensure that there's a dialogue and that the questions and concerns are being listened to and not brushed, brushed away. Okay, no, thanks very much. There's one other question here. Um, someone is asking your thoughts on the J&J and the issue of the clots. They said, um, are we comparing the clots one, million ch- um, one in a million chance of getting a clot? Should we not be comparing that of the chance of getting the COVID itself and the consequences of COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting one. And this goes into the risk perception. And even me reading about these the the chance of these clots will increase people's risk perception of getting vaccinated because they'll the people will make uh, it seem like it's more possible to happen than it really is like you're more likely to be struck by lightning than get a blood clot after the vaccine yet you don't feel like you're at risk of being struck by by lightning so um it's a really interesting risk benefit analysis and i think we do need more information out there so that people can make that decision based on you know, if someone's in their 30s, what's, what's their risk of COVID, but not only hospitalization from COVID, but long COVID or, or blood clots from COVID? I mean, th- there are so many factors to consider, but I think um, the data is still being collected. So it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one, but I think it's really important to communicate um, what is known and what is unknown. And also that um, reviews are taking place. And so far, I think... Um, the risks have been found to be there, but, but very, very small. And it's really difficult for people to comprehend the rare risks, especially rare but severe risks. But I think um, more work needs to be done in terms of communicating that risk. Now, um, what about the approach to pregnant women and vaccination? Yeah, so here as well, we've seen that in the UK, the guidance have changed slightly as well with, well, with COVID vaccine and the I don't think there's been any uh, safety signals, but but also if there hasn't been data, then there's that issue as well. But but also we don't we need to be careful as well, and we saw this with Ebola that we don't want to not be vaccinating a group of the population and hence not pr- protecting them as well. Like it's really important to bal- balance those benefits and risks as well. Okay, thanks very thanks very much. And Thank um, the the last question is someone asked. What if someone accidentally gets a second dose of a different vaccine? Uh, so this isn't my area of expertise, but from my understanding, I think that the analyses are currently being conducted to try and understand um, what, what might happen in terms of effectiveness or safety. But, but um, I think the data is still like, being collected, but it is being researched. Okay. No, thank you very much for your very informative presentation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. As you can see, there are a lot of questions uh, um, on the chat, but um, we'll have to leave it um, there. And um, I'd like to thank all the speakers for their time and very, very uh, informative presentation. And I'd like to think, uh, thank the audience uh, for really uh, sticking with us, um, despite a few little um, uh, sort of um, issues we had with the
um, audio systems. The, um, all of these uh, sessions will be placed on the web starting in two weeks' time, and um, uh, you will be able to uh, view them on YouTube. And please also go to our um, Instagram, uh, uh, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and um, and I'd like to thank all the sponsors again for um, uh, being very generous. Uh, I'd also encourage everyone to sign the World Sepsis Declaration um, on the website. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this event possible, especially all speakers, moderators, our amazing sponsors, and of course, the organizing committee led by Imrana Malik, Tex Kassoon, and Marvin Zick. Starting next Tuesday, May 4th, we will be releasing two sessions per week, starting with session two and three, two of our panel discussions, which I recommend highly. See you next week.